Picture this. You're living in the golden years of your life and your retirement plans are a thing of the past. You're living comfortably, enjoying life to the fullest, and your children are reaping the benefits of your wise investment decisions. Sounds like a dream, right? But it's not a dream. It's reality for many who have navigated their investment journey wisely. Welcome listeners, I'm Marika, COO of Aster Realty Capital, private equity, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Joe Burko, CEO of Aster Realty Capital. Today we're going to be discussing a very important topic actually for many of us, including myself, is investing, prosperity, wealth, and happiness and being comfortable and living our life through making sure everything that where we're putting our hard work money is on the path with security and doing it the right way with the right people. And there's many techniques and there's a lot of wisdom behind it and there's a lot of experience behind it too. So I wanted to make sure to bring Joe Burko today so we can discuss a couple of those topics and really learn from the best from someone who has a lot of experience. With over 25 years, Joe has built a quite impressive portfolio. I would say, you know, today Aster Realty Capital spends over three, three and a half million square feet in different stages of development, investing in multifamily, logistics centers, cold storage, hospitality, and you name it. So welcome, Joe. I, I, I want to, you know, really learn just from the beginning of where it all started and what was your mission? What was your passion to start a private equity fund, a private equity firm? And what was the reason? What was the main why? <laughs> Great question. First of all, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, it's uh, pretty exciting to be in Miami and to do a podcast with you. Um, you know, you're right. I've started close to 30 years ago, actually 28 years. Uh, that I started in real estate, uh, in the real estate business. And, uh, you know, out of the one of the most competitive markets in the world, I would argue, New York City. So it was very, very interesting times, right? Started in the 90s and then kind of like, you know, worked my way through the 2000s. Every kind of like every decade, every own challenges. Uh, we go through cycles. Every industry does. Economy does. And so you got to learn to pivot. Things change. Technology sort of like bursted out. Uh, during those years, it just became a very, very fast-paced world, and it became faster and faster. If you think about today, you know, today technology is like yeah, warp speed now with AI and the way things are changing and how the world is changing. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I've been around the block for a good amount of 20-plus odd years. I've had my own shop, Burko & Associates. Uh, we've had over 25 associates. We were doing hundreds and hundreds of millions of commercial real estate transactions a year representing public companies, private companies, family offices, raising capital for, uh, for, for certain groups, doing large commercial transactions. And it was, I think, the pivoting moment for me in 2014. It was the largest transactions I was working on as an advisor. It was a $182 million deal uh, in Midtown, selling an old office building, large, very large office building, 
to a developer that wanted to buy the asset to convert it to a hotel, a 450-key hotel in the heart of Midtown. It was a very tough transaction. And I remember that the deal lingered on the market for quite some time, but just nobody wanted to deal with the seller. It was just very difficult. You would offer you would offer the seller uh, its price. You would ask for more. You would give him more. You would ask for different terms. Agree with those terms and find different reasons why not to do the deal. So, you know, the, the deal has lingered. Um, nobody took the seller seriously, um, but I did. I did. And I knew that there was a deal there. And I used to say, um, if you if you choose not to sell your asset, you effectively choose to buy it, right? If you choose to say no to a purchase price, you're effectively agreeing to buy it for that price. And I think that the conversation between buyer and seller and the way I've negotiated it is sort of like showing the seller that essentially, are you willing to buy the asset for such a price point? And if not, then why are you keeping it? For the buyer, it was much more, much more obvious. It was a large asset. You know, I think it was a 28-story building. You know, just perfect conversion uh, for that type of a hotel. Where do you find the sheer size in Manhattan, the heart of Manhattan? Uh, so it was, um, it was a, you know, it was a long, longer during out negotiations. Uh, I used to say I specialize, specialize in, in tough cases. And, uh, but we got it through. And uh, I remember working, you know, my, my, uh, my walk of fame, I used to call it. Uh, the next morning, uh, where I'll take the proverbial check all the way down to the bank to deposit it. At this point, it was a seven-figure check. I was walking down Fifth Avenue from my office to, to, the, uh, to the branch. And uh, yeah, the feeling was different. The feeling was very, very, uh, n- not what I ever would expect. Um, quite frankly, I was spent. I was tired. I was kind of like done. I was uh, really done. I was done with the industry. Um, I, over the last several years, I've sort of like noticed that things have been changing quite, quite extensively. Uh, information was flowing in and was coming into the market and was available widely. And so I would argue that, um, you know, buyers and sellers had the information and access to everything. And yet most have understood the value of almost nothing. Um, they, however, saw and kind of like diminished the work of the intermediaries, the brokers, the advisors. And so when it came, kind of like reduced commissions, deal became a lot more competitive. A lot more folks were entering into the market. Large brokerage firms were breaking up, turning to smaller. It was just a very different environment. It's been going on. On top of it, Silicon Valley has been dropping and spending billions and billions of dollars every year trying to disrupt this industry. And, and I think they're doing a good job trying to disrupt this industry and actually succeeding. You can see it in, in the rental industry. You can see it in the, some of the condo industry with new technology and new ideas of how to kind of like remove the middle guy, remove the middleman. Um, and so, you know, I've taken a little bit of a break uh, from, from, uh, from work. I've taken a good couple of months. I would show up to the office, but I wouldn't work on new transactions. I would just observe and kind of like, you know, talk to my peers and talk to my competitors, my friendly competitors. But what they're feeling about the industry, and I slowly sort of started formulating my own new plan. I knew I wanted to pivot. I sort of like reached a peak and I didn't want to continue. And so I asked myself a couple of questions. The first one was, what is it that I bring? What's the value add that I bring to the table, right? Um, and what is it that the industry needs the most? And it was very apparent to me that the most important thing that's kind of like the, the scarce, right? There's capital out there. From banks. Um, banks are competing. They're widely known, they're widely available. 
it's just a handful of them. The good ones, it's just a handful. And everyone's sort of like chasing the exact same sources of capital. But what's scarce and what's kind of like very hard to get is equity. And so I knew I had to focus on that. The second thing I asked myself is really what makes me happy. And looking at the last transaction that I did, and you know what, not to kind of like diminish it, I've gotten great awards for it. Uh, you know, CoStar nominated me as a New York City power broker. Uh, Globe Street gave me a nomination and awards, all kinds of different things. I was in a newspaper. She was great, warm, and fuzzy, but it was different, right? And so I asked myself, truly, what makes me happy? And what makes me happy is to work with individuals and to actually achieve results and be acknowledged for it, be recognized for it, and at the same time, know full well that what I do actually makes a difference. And so after a good pause and a good amount of frustration, I... Um, started uh, a private equity firm called Astor Realty Capital. Our why is to allow our investors to essentially participate in high-level real estate transactions where money is secured to the best that we can, risk is adjusted to the return that we're able to achieve, and continue going after great transactions while we are being the managers, watching how the ball is moving and making sure that everything is sort of like Know, reported accurately, if there's changes in, in transactions, if there's changes in, in an investment property, um, you know, we have the right and we have the authority uh, as partners in the deal to step in, to correct it, to remove an operating partner. So that's what we started. And that's really the why. So it's very interesting because when you're going from, from one area of expertise and then you're jumping to a, a new area of expertise that mm -hmm. kind of just also follows each other and, and goes with what that section of expertise is. And I know that you said that you've been nominated in different parts. I know you were also serving on the New York real estate uh, under two governors. So that's a very big deal. Also, that comes with extensive experience. And you mentioned one of the most competitive markets in in U.S., it's New York. I happen to agree with that as well. I, I know that part of your company, Aster, uh, that you, you've started with exactly on that foundation. It's really to protect the wealth, to be the voice for that, where that movement of capital is going. And that's a very big topic for today. Because, you know, capital always moves in different directions. There's always a flow of capital. and It's so important to pay attention to that. So that pivot was actually a very interesting thing because it shows that you pay attention to such detail. You pay attention to where the market is going and how it's moving and you pivot along with that. So I definitely want to touch on that point before we move on to a next question is, is that pivot because not only... As a firm, you're looking at the pivots and how can I make sure that I personally invest the right way? So I want to be able to address that to our listeners today. It's, you know, as of today, where are your pivots on the company side and the firm side? And where do certain investors, when they're looking, okay, let's look at the market of how it is today, there's almost an unknown of the pivots, but because you have so much of your pulse on different markets, different currencies, different firms, what are some of the vision that you see today? Where are those pivots? And what are some of the pointers that you can get to some 
investors that are really looking for that kind of advice or answers uh, in those pivots in today's market? So, um, you know, there's, there's a constant flow. There's a constant flow of capital and you really have to read the tea leaves and understand where is capital going? Do you want to spend time and invest in a market that is sort of like anemic, where investment is sort of like moving out? Um, are you looking for uh, an area where it's abundance, opportunities, jobs, growth, migration? So we follow those trends. That's the first thing. And you can look, and some of those trends are very, very, very obvious, right? If you look at certain markets, if you look at certain sectors of those markets, then you understand that capital has been moved away. It's been moved away for quite some time. Um, and so what we look for is those anomalies or big opportunities that are widely available for everyone. And so when I look for anomalies, I look for certain industries and certain job sectors and growth where I know that income level is almost foreign to a location. And so, for example, would be you know, the West, the, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the, the Space Coast in Florida. Here's, a here's an area that has been absorbing a tremendous amount of new wave of employment, right? Tremendous demand, very high salaries, almost foreign to that location. With it comes new needs and new demands for uh, entertainment, for schools, for various services, for a very different type of a lifestyle, a much more upgraded lifestyle. And so if you read that and you know that this is an area where the demand is going to influence how construction is going to get done, how services are going to get purchased, then you know what to look for. So other areas, you know, they're much more widely available. If you look at the United States as a whole, you know, it's kind of like the two main areas that are gaining most population, right, over the last few years, and of course, accelerated much more during the pandemic, is the two states that we follow very closely, which is Florida and Texas. And yet, if you look closely at Florida and Texas, then you'll make very different demands and very different, you know, very different demand drivers on each one. One of them is essentially Florida, the population growth in Florida, the migration, the positive migration in Florida has double the income of that of Texas, right? And so in Florida, we're going to look for different projects and we're going to look for certain sectors that has those projects. On the other hand, in Texas, we will look for more like, you know, uh, more, more rentals, um, a different type of environment, different type of, a, different type of an investment. So we look for sectors, we look for geographic location, and we try to do a match. I try to give this as a good example. We've done a transaction with a wonderful group um, out uh, right outside of, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, in Scottsdale. Um, so we've been looking at Scottsdale market and Arizona market, uh, specifically the Phoenix area, quite for a good number of years. We've been studying it. We've been going there and, and having meetings and, and things like that. And so 
one thing that we started noticing is that, you know, Phoenix is gaining a lot of interest from a lot of different groups. And the construction starts got us to the point that it became a little bit alarming, both in the residential, the private homes, and also on the, on the rental. And so we started getting a little bit worried about uh, the amount of new inventory that's coming to the market. At the same time, we've also saw an anomaly in the space of hospitality. Uh, and so we found a great operating partner. We knew we were not going to go into a residential in, in Scottsdale and, and in Phoenix uh, because of the uh, a tremendous pent-up supply that's coming up. And, um, and we decided to go into the hospitality space. And so we've, you know, we've uh, got into a project that's the first uh, Caesar, uh, non-gaming Caesar called the Caesar Republic adjacent to the Fashion Square uh, Mall. Uh, we're super excited about this project. If you've been looking at the trains, ADRs, rev cars, and have been growing substantially in that market, and the demand was very strong. Lifestyle hotel were very much in demand, very affluent area. And so we look for geographic locations. We look for those anomalies. We track employment, all the things that I've mentioned. And then we choose kind of like the asset class that we want to find in that particular area alongside an operating partner that can deliver. So I love that you mentioned, even though you look on a macro level, you look on all over U.S., but then you have your focus on specific geographic mm -hmm. markets that are, have that very strong growth. For an, an investor, for example, even in, in Florida or even in mm -hmm. Texas, mm -hmm. right? Just the markets themselves are so huge and everybody else is looking there too. Right. How do you differentiate what is the exact right type of investment and project? Mm -hmm. Let's say, let's focus on Florida, for example, because I feel like, you know, that's that's a very big topic. A lot of people are focused on Florida, Texas too, of course, but let's just pick one state for now. So we pick Florida. So you pick Florida. I'm sure there's multiple opportunities there. Which one do you pick? How do you pick one? What, what is the, the, the right way to pick one? What are those steps? Mm -hmm. How can I make sure that I'm choosing something properly and being very wise and, and uh, not jumping on something just because everybody else is? That's a good question. It's uh, so many very, very different variables goes into it. So, you know, we choose a location based on the characteristics and, and statistics that I've mentioned. Once we choose a location, then the second question is, who do we build it with or who do we acquire it with? And so there comes a whole different conversation, the conversations of who's going to be a good partner for us. Our company, Astro Realty Capital, essentially does not um, build. We invest alongside operating partners that have the ability to execute, to build. And so our job is, once we've identified a location, let's identify the right partner for us. Now, opportunities come to us. We go over seven, 800 transactions and requests to participate, request for capital on an annual basis. We essentially transact about two to three percent a year of those. So which means that 97, 98 percent of everything that we see, we say no to for a variety of reasons. So what are those reasons? You know, it goes to so many different variables. Assumption number one, a lot of the deals that we see, the cost doesn't justify, right? The returns are too low. So we push it aside. 
because and what's the function essentially of of return on cost? You know, when we're looking into construction, things happen in the world of construction. Things sometimes takes longer, delays happen, uh, which translates to additional cost, which translates to uh, diminished returns. So, adjusting for um, adjusting for low returns from the very get go, yet pushed out. Secondly, we look at situations where potentially the groups that bring us a project are maybe over projecting, okay, or a little bit over um, uh, over inflating the numbers, right? Having too much of a positive outlook into the future. We try to keep it as close as possible to what is, and not so much bet on what will be, right? And so we move situations where we see over over projections, too much of a rosy sort of like an outcome. Um, having said that, you know, we're uh, aggregating so much information. We have so much knowledge that comes from all the information that we collect. And when we do find a project, we pretty much know to a very, very, uh, very, a very large degree how things are going to cost, how long they're going to take, and what the returns are going to be based on leasing assumptions or sales assumptions and so on. And so... Having access to all this information is extremely important to us. Past that part, you know, we have certain requirements. See, we're a little bit of a different private equity type of a firm. We manage capital on behalf of our investors, on behalf of institutional groups. And essentially, we're the boots on the ground. We have professionals that go into every project, check the project, making sure that things are on time and on budget. And if they don't, we negotiate a very hard contract that allows us to do a takeover in the event of bad acts, uh, uh, removal events, all sorts of different things to protect the capital that is entrusted with us. Not every group, not every developer feels comfortable with this. There has to be an element between the DNA of our company and the DNA of the company that we're about to go into the venture with. Now, having said all of that, you know, we're not here to eliminate risk. That's not my job. And the job is not to remove risk. My job is to manage it. And so with a good amount of projects, with wealth of knowledge and information, and with the right type of partner to execute, I can pretty much put things and weigh them against one against the other and see which project will do better, realistically better, because of all the points that I've mentioned. And so it's kind of like trying to cram 28 years of a career into, yeah. a, into, a, into an answer, um, but uh, that's the best I can do right now. <laughs> okay. Well, that, you know, that clarifies it, you know, the sounds to me like the first main things that are important is, you know, first, and you said you go through about 800. I'm sure that's At done. Least. And, and, and that's, you know, done with a, a large team and uh, a, a very experienced team that is as well. So, uh, it, you know, to go through that many year and say yes to 10, uh, that definitely quantifies to, the detail of what you choose and what, what you look sure. at. So when, let's talk about when you do choose a project or, or our listeners, you know, okay, so I'm in the stage of, I have a few options. I have a couple of different type of projects that I can take a look at, different type of return profile, different type of risk profile. What determines for you the right partner, the right risk profile, 
understand the type of returns that you can manage the risk on. Very good. So we, as I mentioned, we have um, uh, a partnership going on with a public company from overseas for the last six years. It's, it's a great partnership. Uh, it's a great partnership. Um, one that I uh, uh, turned into a great relationship and a great friendship as well. Um, so they have that, that, sort, that, that body of capital as its own needs. One of them is return of capital within three years, maximum four years. Right, so I'll go with that with that capital mind. I'll go and negotiate certain type of projects. Now, we are also, uh, you know, with, with about two hundred and fifty plus high net worth individuals that are investing with us at a very very steady level. Each and every one of those is different groups, right? And they have different wants and different needs. So. You know, some of the projects that we do, and we have three ways to deploy capital. I think it's important to mention as well. Uh, we deploy capital through debt or all sorts of debt instruments from senior secure to, to mezzanine to uh, bifurcated A positions. Uh, we have um, preferred equity positions that allows us to manage risk in a different, in a different way. And we have, of course, uh, deploying capital through equity. And so different elements and different type of deals represent different type of investment um, risk. So I would say I like to take into account the folks that are interested in steady flow of income. We have a group amount of investors that for them, income is important. If it's distributed on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis or even an annual basis, income is important. So I try to bring that sort of, uh, that sort of a group, uh, the type of value and the kind of returns that will uh, satisfy that sort of a demand from those investors. At the same time, we have, you know, our core group of investors are okay with placing money out for two, three years, four years, even five, as long as the annual return, the overall annual return will be somewhere in the 20s or the mid-20s. And for those groups, you know, if we go sort of like, you know, full-on equity projects, uh, we might go condominium, we might go after projects that has a higher, kind of like a higher bank for the buck. Um, and so in, in the in-betweens, we'll find kind of like a happy medium with the preferred equity projects. And so each one has its own element and fit a different type of investor. But investor shows up uh, to our office and says, hey, we have a certain amount of dollars to invest. Um, I always say, you know, divide it into three to five deals. Don't drop it all in one bucket, okay? It's important to create your own diversification. And, um, you know, over the course of time, uh, that's, that's essentially creates a good diversification for the investors themselves. They see different streams of income, whether it is, um, whether it is through a preferred equity with a short deals of two years or 18 months, or whether it is a longer deals that are kind of like running in the background and improving and, uh, or whether it is the sort of a deal that's generate for them an income on a monthly, monthly or quarterly basis. You know, we create an inside dynamic, create its own, each, each investor has its own, kind of like his own portfolio. And so that's, that's what we're, that's sort of like our balancing act for various, uh, various groups and various investors. And of course, it goes much deeper than that. And we can talk about how many years you have for retirement, or maybe the investor himself is retired. We can go into the much, much deeper analysis. Yeah, I, I know that for Aster, it's extremely important to know all of the investors very personally and mm -hmm. all their needs and, Very important. and their goals too, right? That's right. It's really important to really create that 
portfolio and diversify. Yes. So let's zoom in a little bit mm-hmm. on you, because I know that in Aster, a very big motto is alignment of capital, alignment of our interest is, you know, that your money, our money is behind all your money as well. So there's a balance there. So I want to zoom in on you, for example, when you invest in those deals yourself, what is it that you look for? What are what are your goals? What are the areas of, you know, like how we spoke about the retirement and protecting my wealth? What are the important things for you when going into those projects? And then when when the capital is in those projects, how is that managed? You mentioned there's different vehicles. So I want to just touch on that a little of bit course. as well. Of course. So first of all, uh, it's important to note that my capital uh, is invested in every project. It takes the exact amount of risk like each and every one of our investors. That's part of the alignment of interest. Um, secondly, we make sure that our operating partner also has a good amount of skin in the game. Right? Those with skin in the game stay in the game. And so we require a minimum of 20% from our operating partner in the project. And, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it depends on which market that can be a sensation. There's a lot of operating partners and investors and developers don't want to put more than 5%, but that's something that's extremely important to us. So skin in the, ba- skin in the game is important. Alignment of interest is important. You create an alignment when you have something to lose. If the only thing I have to lose is my other, other people's money, it's not quite an alignment. And, and there's so many firms out there that are structured exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so that's the first thing. Secondly, I mean, you know, it's every project that I do, I, I'm perfectly, perfectly okay with the diversification that I offer my own investors. And so by nature, you know, I still at this point have about 25 different projects. By nature, we have a diversified portfolio. We're in seven states. We're in 12 top MSAs. Uh, we are diversified between uh, lifestyle hotel, four-star hotels, uh, between condominium projects, between multifamily, between logistical centers, mixed-use projects, high-rise. Uh, so, so we're creating this diversification. And if we have investors, and most of our investors are coming in into every project in variety of you know variety of levels, are coming to every project, we create a very nicely balanced type of a portfolio. Uh, Thank God, by the way, I want to mention what we don't touch is, and we haven't, uh, and we don't plan to, is offices. You know, if you were kind of like uh, noticing uh, what's happening in the world of offices, it's a complete, complete catastrophe. And it's very sad to see. Um, And um, sort of like becoming the new uh, enclosed malls of of the last 15, 20 years, uh, I think what what office is going through is uh, quite tremendous. And... um, while you can probably see it, and the writing was on the wall in uh, in, in shopping malls and retail in general, um, you know, with with the emergence of e-commerce, I think that in the world of office, it sort of like came out of nowhere, right? It came out of the pandemic. The conversations shift, the world shift. I'm sorry, I'm pivoting to a different conversation right now, but I wanted to touch that because it's kind of like you know, no, it's, it's the, the sensational part of what we're going through in real estate right now. And and everybody's looking at that. So that's okay that we shifted that way because that's something that we can mm-hmm. bring up as well, right? Just the same way like how we zoomed in on you is 
So t- today, when you're choosing for yourself, mm-hmm. for your capital, for your investment, yeah. and if you were, you know, we're speaking to the audience here, to all the investors out there, mm-hmm. you know, what what do you say? You know, where where are you looking to go in the next couple of months going into uh, 2024? What would be some of the main topics and the, the major goals of where real estate investing will be and where you feel the most comfortable? Sure. So around May of 2022, I sat down with my analysts. We've had a conversation. It was the second 50 basis points increase by the feds going in a very short period of time. And we felt that it's time to pause. So June of 22, we sort of like stopped operations. We fulfilled some of the commitments that we've had previously, and we stopped. And we have been observing the markets and non-actively participating in conversations, in underwriting, in, in putting our fingers on the pulse on the market. But for the last year, we have not transacted. And if you look in hindsight, the markets peaked in March of 2022. And it's been a very steady decline until pretty much now, right? We've seen about 15.5%, give or take, at this point, of a decline through all asset classes and all markets combined. Of course, if you look sector by sectors, even the sectors such as multifamily, most secured sectors, I've seen a drop of about 19%, 19.2% to be exact, nationwide. And so a lot of folks are in, in a fear of second shoe dropping, is recessions coming, all those things that are sort of like causing the market to sort of like drop in values. The feds are pumping uh, more fear with conversations. There's more expected uh, increases that are coming up. Inflation during that period of time was as high as 85 and 9%. It was certainly a very bleak moment in time. And so we've been sitting on the sidelines trying to see when will the market adjust and encapsulate the fact that there's a new, you know, it's a new environment out there. Um, around May, April, May of this year, I started feeling that we're looking at the bottom. You know, interest rates started scaling back slowly, slowly. We're now, right now, looking at 3%. Supply chains issues are no longer a conversation. We no longer see um, labor shortages as we did a year ago and a year and a half ago and two years ago. And so construction starts have dropped 50% year over year. So everything points to me to the point that this is the time for us to head straight in, back into the market. There's still enough of scarcity out there in terms of capital, in terms coming from banks, right? Most of the banks are pulled back and tightened underwriting significantly. CMBS market has been has been scaling back for the last 10 years, but still with CMBS from its peak, it's now 25% of what it once was. The uh, era of the secondary um, capital is out there. Uh, and yeah, we can see, I mean, we can see tremendous return. We're now able to re- make returns of somewhere in the mid-20s with bifurcated senior secured positions. That's the kind of return we used to make 
couple of years ago with equity. And so if I can place capital out there, if I can leverage my capital and place it out there and achieve the type of returns that I'm looking to achieve, reducing the risk significantly, then that's exactly where I want to be. Our next step is to move away from uh, from one-off deals or from single-purpose um, entities into a fund structure. So that's where we're focusing right now, turning um, what we know, our leverage, our reach out into uh, into a fund structure, um, and that's uh, that's our next mission. I hope to deploy that by the uh, end of the year, possibly even sooner. Um, but that's that's where we're heading. So. Again, if I'm able to achieve the kind of return I would see in equity, only play in debt, then that's exactly where I want to be. I want to be where I'm needed and where we're needed the most right now. Like uh, the great Milton Friedman once said, you know, the only thing that matters is the money supply. Yeah. And we're missing money. So that's where we need to be. Great. Thank yeah. you so much, Joe. Uh, really appreciate having Pleasure. you here. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing about the fund and uh, having having you speak again. And I definitely want to go into more details and talk about other topics. Mm-hmm. So until next time, thank you. Thank you for having me, Marika. <laughs>